You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Bob. Great to be here. Well, good to have you. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Kristen Link Young, a fellow at the Bro- venerable, I should say, Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., The almost the the grand person of think tanks. I mean, Brookings was like almost the first, the first famous think tank, right? That's exactly right. And we just celebrated our hundred year anniversary. A hundred. Indeed. Wow. And so much idealism surrounded the creation of think tanks. It almost makes me nostalgic. Yeah, absolutely. One of the women who were used to work in our group is Alice Riblin, who just passed away recently. Oh, did she, she? I didn't know that. So she was, yeah. uh, was she ran office of management and budget for a while or something? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. She had a dozen different positions in multiple administrations. It was a real luminary. I um, mean, she worked with us on the health team um, and has just amazing stories about the role Brookings has played in the policy conversation for m- many, many years. Okay. Well, congratulations at being in such an influential place. Um, <laughs> especially at a time when our president seeks out the guidance of scholars everywhere. Indeed. Indeed. That's really what he's known for. So you study healthcare and we're going to talk about healthcare in the context of the presidential campaign, which includes, uh, you know, president Trump's uh, healthcare policy, uh, Joe Biden's. And also I think uh, Bernie Sanders is still relevant. He's, He's no longer a strong contender for the nomination, but he is trying to move uh, Democratic Party policy in his direction, and he's going to try to use what leverage he has. So I want to talk about his, uh, you know, the Medicare for all as well as uh, kind of Biden's approach. But given that we're living at a moment when it's impossible to start a conversation that doesn't immediately lead to the coronavirus, and since that is related to healthcare, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that not not necessarily in your in your capacity as as an expert i know you're not an infectious disease expert but um but we're all coronavirus experts these days aren't we and yeah no, that, that that's exactly right it's it's um it's something that's kind of permeating everybody's life. Uh, People often ask why healthcare is such a big issue in politics. And the answer I always give is that healthcare is really personal. When, When you're sick or someone in your family is sick, it's like the most important thing in your life for for months at a time. And I think we're seeing that now in society as a whole, as we struggle with what this virus means and how our society is going to respond and sort of what comes next. I know I am think my my parents are scheduled to to come see their granddaughter mm. um, at the end of the month and uh, you know thinking about what what where are they the, where are they coming from ohio here to here to washington so they would have to get on a plane to come to washington indeed this indeed. raises issues exactly and you know i i feel lucky every day my husband and i talk about this all the time that that one of the things we know about this virus is that it doesn't affect kids. We have an 18-month-old daughter, um, and so that's that's a blessing. But but we have so many other people in our lives who who could be affected, um, and and that's it's um, it's mm. very it's very present for us. Yeah, I've got a daughter who lives in New York, also one in Russia, which happily is pretty much unscathed so far by coronavirus. But the one in New York, I'm worried about her because she's in New York. She's worried about me because I'm an old person, and. Uh, like I, I went into New York for one day and she 
almost disowned me as punishment um, for, for even taking that. I live about an hour from New York. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. But uh, so it's tough. And I gather your, your husband, tell us what it, happened to him today. Indeed. He was actually just, just before we, uh, we sat down today, he was sent home from work because there's a, a suspected case of COVID-19 in, in his building. Um, so he's been sent home. He, uh, he picked up our daughter from daycare and is headed home. Brookings is actually beginning mandatory telework um, starting on, on Monday. So we're really seeing, I think, institutions responding with, with social distancing and, um, you know, trying to, to keep all of us from interacting with other people um, to the to the greatest extent. So, so tomorrow is your last day in the office for a while. Yeah, though, though, honestly, I may not I may not come in tomorrow just as where we start to assess. Yeah. Um, you know, what's what's best for our communities and, and you know, the people all around us. Yeah, it's amazing uh, how much capacity technology actually gives us to reduce the chance of infection, um, for, you know, for That's a certain right. category of workers, uh, which is a pretty big one. No, that, that that's absolutely right. I mean, we can we can all stay home more easily. We can also all be in touch with our loved ones more easily. I mean, yep. the sort of degree of isolation that that people will experience during this time of social distancing is is potentially much much less than it would have been even even twenty years ago. Yeah, what did you think of uh, President Trump's Oval Office presentation last night? We're taping this Thursday. It'll probably run Friday. What, what did you think? Honestly, the thing that has been most terrifying to me about watching the federal government response is how they they botch even the easy things. Um, so, so the the issues that I know a little bit about related to health insurance coverage, you've you've watched this administration make statement after statement that's just not quite getting the details right, and that makes me really worried about how they're making decisions on. Other issues where I don't know the details, but but I would hope the decision makers do, um, and and it's just hard to have confidence in that at, at this moment. And I think was, that's that's the scariest thing. Was there a salient example of that in the in the speech? Yeah. So so last night the president suggested that um, that all private insurance was covering treatment for COVID nineteen with, without copays as well as testing, um, and and. That's that's just not true at all. It's not true even with respect to testing. There are still gaps in how insurance coverage pays for for COVID nineteen testing under under existing law, um, and then treatment isn't even on the table for anyone. So there's there's just like a, a major set of inaccuracies. In these so I, I missed what you said about the claim he made. Did he say that uh, he was directing that it be covered, or that it was already covered, or what? He sort of suggested that it was covered, that, that you know, through the leadership of the administration, that they had accomplished this, and when, in fact, they, they had not. Huh. Yeah, also, you'd think that if the policy is people can't fly here from Europe, but goods can be transported, it would be possible to make that clear. <laughs> but the failure to do that apparently freaked out uh, financial people all over the world, briefly. That, that's... That's totally right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's strange. Uh, I mean, I could go all day. I thought it was strange that he started this, this speech by saying, um, we're working with our allies. I thought, I mean, first of all, I thought our allies. I mean, like, if it's a virus, isn't everyone our ally? Like, what is? But then it turns out, actually, he antagonizes all our our actual allies. Almost all members of NATO wound up, you know, quite annoyed about the travel ban. It, it just is... Uh, it's it's an interesting time. 
I think that the spot of good news today um, is that we've seen sort of a reasonably comprehensive set of ideas come out of the House of Representatives about how the House would would approach this. I think it's, uh, you know, despite some of the labeling we've seen over the last 12 hours, I think it's like legitimately a set of bipartisan ideas that actually would would be effective and are and are needed. And so there's like a template for Congress to get its act together and and sort of push things forward and, and do some helpful work, whether or not will take advantage of that is I think an open question, but, uh, but there are at least, I think some signs to that, that we can be a little bit optimistic about, about things getting back in the right. Now, path. is this a bill that Mitch McConnell is refusing to consider before Senate recess? Yes, he, he did say that though, though he a few hours later announced that they were, they were the Senate was going to be canceling its recess. So good thinking um, Mitch. I'm so that's, I hadn't heard that actually. I mean, that actually is good news, but also, I think sound political judgment. Um, right. There's the, uh, a lot of work they need to do. What's the best part of the bill? What are some good parts of the bill that? Yeah, so I think that the best parts of the bill are are sort of outside my area of expertise, but there's a set of targeted um, financing mechanisms to sort of put money and services in the hands of families who are going to be adversely affected. So things like paid sick leave and and other kinds of paid leave support for the food stamp program. Um, in the areas that I know more about, there's also there's also great policy there too. Um, there there is a broad based requirement in this bill that all insurance plans of all types have to cover testing services with no copays. So that would mean there are no financial barriers to testing. Um, there there are structures put in place so that the uninsured population can get tested. And there's a big chunk of money to support state governments and state Medicaid programs who are going to take a take a hit as as you know, many, many people in America get sick for a little bit. And so rather than having state economies just thrown into crisis by by pressure on state budgets, there's there's sort of new money coming into state Medicaid programs. And, and that, that'd be good news if we can get that done. Okay. And so a certain amount of it sounds like will make it easier for people to do things that actually uh, help fight the the contagion. That, that's right. That's right. And, and we will support our economy as we, as we do those things, because social distancing is going to have costs for, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And, and we should, we should recognize that and we should insulate families from, from, from those costs. Mm -hmm. Although those of us who aren't huggers are, you know, seeing a little silver lining here. (laughs) (laughs) No more, no more social hugging. Um, So uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the, it's a strange it's a rare example, so far as I can recall, of a case where um, fear is – there's something to be said for fear. I mean, you know, it's like you – in most like with terrorism, too much fear gets you to do stupid things and invade countries and discriminate against Muslims and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, it just seems to me that this, I mean, the, the unpleasantness of the fear is unfortunate. And I'm sure it leads people to do things that don't particularly help. At the same time, especially in in a, in a kind of absence of strong presidential leadership about the things we should all be doing, um, it seems to me it is what 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 some people dismiss as almost a panic level reaction. And I'm sure in a way looks like that from a certain vantage point is actually leading us to do a lot of things that will slow the contagion, right? I think that's I think that's totally right. One of the other like interesting psychological aspects of of where we are right now is responding effectively 
calls on all of us to, to take actions that are, are not so much about effect, about protecting like ourselves. It's not about me and my husband and my daughter, but rather about protecting all of the elderly and vulnerable residents who, who live in our neighborhood and, and live in our community and sort of go to the grocery store um, and, and all of that. And so um, that's just like not a muscle we're used to exercising um, when we when we think about policy or when we think about health and safety. Um, and so so I think that the, the sort of the way the fear intersects with that need for us to be cognizant of our community mm-hmm. are, are important and, and novel. Yeah. And there is uh, I mean, the relationship between the two is interesting. It's it's like truth is, if you're young and healthy, there's little reason little strictly self-interested reason for fear to lead you to radically change your lifestyle and do, and, you know, obsessively wash your hands and stuff. But if you start thinking about other people in the community, then there is, there is a call. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Okay. So let's, why don't we uh, talk a little about uh, what is uh, more uh, closer to your, the core of your expertise, which is, you know, health, care policy, health insurance policy. Um, and let's, uh, let's, let me just tell you what I think I understand about uh, Biden's position on health care. And first we can contrast it with Bernie's and then uh, maybe with Trump's. But um, I, I think Biden is uh, championing like maybe what Obamacare might have been in a world with no political obstacles to realizing the original vision of Obamacare? Is it, is it that, or is it even more robust than that? It's interesting. I've never, I've never thought about it in exactly that way before, but I think, I think that's, I think that's, that's spot on. It's a, it's a, it's exactly where, where the Biden plan is headed. If you, if you just, if you like back up one step, and you think about how people get health coverage today. So the, what the health insurance landscape looks like right now is that about half of Americans get coverage from their employer, um, you know, from, from some sort of employer plan. Another little more than a third get coverage from an existing public program like Medicare or Medicaid. You've got a tiny slice of people who buy coverage in what's called the individual market. They buy coverage directly from an insurance company, um, that's about five percent of people, and then you've got ten percent of the population that's that's uninsured, and so that, mm-hmm. that's the situation we're in now. What has, has that number been? Has that number uh, been reduced as a result of Obamacare? Even oh, even oh. the form of Obamacare that is with us at this point. Definitely. So what the Affordable Care Act did was it reduced the uninsured rate by about half, a little bit less than half, um, compared to what it would have been about without the ACA. And it, it did that by sort of shoring up this chunk of people who get coverage by buying it directly from the individual market it, or buying it in the individual mm-hmm. market kind of directly from an insurance company. It regulated that market so it couldn't exclude people with pre-existing conditions and it provided financial assistance to people so that it was much more affordable to get coverage there. Um, and then the other thing Obamacare did, of course, is it expanded the Medicaid program so that a whole bunch more low-income people get coverage through, through Medicaid in the 37 states that have taken that that up. There's a whole bunch of folks, particularly people of color in the South, who don't don't get coverage from Medicaid because their state has has not 
taken up the option that Obamacare made available. Mm-hmm. But but the ACA did a lot to to sort of fill in this this chart and get uninsured people into coverage. But there's still that place of ten percent of folks who who are uninsured. That's about thirty million people. Okay, and to be clear, some of them, some of those are people who would be uh, get med- get Medicaid if they. Uh, well, I guess here's my question. So you referred to some states where the expanded Medicaid coverage or uh, under Obamacare didn't kick in because governors didn't accept the deal the federal government offered them, which was to pay for it almost entirely, right. uh, at least in the near term. And yet the governors, these are pretty much entirely Republican governors, said, no, we still don't. We still don't want that. Now, would that have increased the number of people covered by Medicaid or just increased the coverage that existing Medicaid recipients had? The former. So it would increase okay. the number of people. Number of people. So that yeah. accounts for some of the 10% who are uninsured. They're living in states with that have uh, Republican governors of a kind who didn't want to uh, accept that deal. That's right. That's right. So it's actually, it's sort of useful to think about why people who are uninsured today are uninsured. Like if they were trying to get coverage, where could they get coverage? So about half the people who are currently uninsured could get coverage through one of our existing federal programs, but they haven't signed up yet. Either because they don't know about it or they think it's still too expensive um, or, or, you know, they don't want it. But so half of the people who are uninsured, like could sign up today. They just haven't. But it would cost some of them money, the ones who aren't on Medicaid? That's right. That's right. It would cost it would cost many of them premiums. Some of them very substantial premiums, others pretty small premiums. Um, but there's there's definitely a mix in there. And then the other half are people who can't get assistance to buy coverage today, either because their state didn't expand Medicaid or because they're sort of otherwise locked out of our existing programs by various types of eligibility rules. Um, and so if you look at what the Biden plan is trying to do, is it's, it's looking at that, that 10% of Americans who are uninsured and saying, what can we do to get all of those people coverage somehow? And the main strategy it uses is making the, the financial assistance that the ACA provided more broadly available and more generous. So it sort of wants to say to those 10% of people who remain uninsured, we're going to make we're going to make it so you can get coverage more cheaply mm-hmm. than than you can get it today and we're going to we're going to ensure that that everybody has has access to some form of financial assistance. Okay. And that's going to make things cheaper for a whole bunch of people who have coverage as well. Um it, it, you know lots of people who have coverage are going to find their premiums lowered under something like the Biden plan. Um but then lots more of the uninsured are going to be able to come into coverage because it's going to be a much better financial deal for them. And they're, we're going to get rid of these obstacles that keep them from getting covered. Would it, would it get around the problem of Republican governors who just don't want to increase the number of people on Medicaid in their state? Yeah. So under the, under the Biden plan, states who have not yet, for states that have not yet expanded Medicaid, mm-hmm. um, a federal program would cover the people um, in, in those states who would otherwise qualify for expansion. Okay. Now, what about uh, the people in the category that uh, say my daughters are in that I've intermittently been in and will be in until I'm uh, old enough for Medicare. Um, the, uh, which is, you know, we're not poor like that. We, we wouldn't come close to qualifying for Medicaid, but um, 
insurance is kind of seems ridiculously, almost prohibitively pricey. Now, I gather that in Obamacare, as originally conceived, I mean, first of all, part of the remedy is that uh, people can buy insurance at subsidized rates. That was particularly true of older people, because as I understood it, there was an implicit subsidy of older people by younger people, right? The young people who can get insurance pretty cheap anyway, because they're just not all that much at risk uh, for for needing costly treatment. Um, they weren't getting a great deal. Uh, and, and in fact, maybe, the, I don't know, were they paying more than the market would have them pay? But in any event, the good deal was focused at the higher age brackets and 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 that I I guess is true. As Obamacare came to exist, there was at least some discount, some subsidy for a lot of us available in principle. But what wasn't part of the package was the so-called public option, which uh, would have, I guess. Well, you tell me. It, it, it's almost uh, it, it's it's almost like a version of Medicare in the sense that it's it, it's. Uh, federally prescribed policy structure, like this is what's covered. And then they would give it to you at like a pretty good price. It wouldn't be free. But if you didn't find anything appealing in the marketplace with the subsidies, you could go for that public option, right? Yeah. So so useful to sort of, I think, think of the financial assistance and the public option kind of as separate policy questions. So the first set of questions is like, what's the premium that you have to pay for coverage? Mm -hmm. And there's a premium that's set by the market. um, And it does vary a little bit by age, but you're totally right that it's uh, older people pay more than younger people, but, but there is some subsidy from younger people to older people. So there's this market premium. And then there's pretty generous financial assistance that lots and lots of people qualify for. Even people who we don't sort of typically think of as, as poor under under current law, a family of four up to $100,000, they would income up about $100,000 a year, yeah. can, can, can qualify for financial assistance. So, so that's it, on top of the, uh, in a sense, discounted premiums that, that are themselves subsidized. In a di- there's an additional uh, thing that they get. Right. Sort of like a direct premium subsidy. The federal uh-huh. government pays a portion of the premium. Um, and that, that scales by, by income. So, um, so it's more generous the lower your your income is, but it's available to a, a big chunk of the of of the the sort of middle class and, and the working class. Um, but but lots of people argue that the that the sort of amount of premium subsidy that the federal government is making available there isn't generous enough. Mm-hmm. Um, that that we should we should make it more generous at all income levels. Um, so that that the sort of amount that a family has to pay for coverage is capped, and the families that make even more than a hundred thousand dollars a year should should qualify for this premium subsidy as well, and and it should scale by income, but but be be more generous across the board. So that's like one question, and the Biden plan would would invest a lot of money in making those subsidies more more generous. Then there's the second question of like what you can buy with that subsidy. And under current law, all you can buy is, is private insurance. There's an array of private insurance products that you can choose from. Under the Biden plan and, and you know, the, the idea of lots of other people, uh, we want to give you the option to buy not just private insurance, but also this public option plan. So you could take your subsidy and apply it 
to a, a public option plan that, that is run by the government, like Medi- you know, operates sort of like Medicare, and you would have the option to buy that as well. And that's attractive for a couple of reasons. First is some people just would prefer to, to buy that buy that option. Um, you know, they don't like insurance companies or, or whatever. But the other reason it's attractive is because the, that government-run plan has a lot of leverage over the prices it pays for prescription drugs and for hospital care and all of that. And so the idea is if you introduce this competition from a public option in the market, you're going to lower prices overall because so, because there's this competition. So it can bargain with, say, a prescription drug provider because it has so much, just the way Walmart can bargain with wholesalers because they have so much market power. But why can't, I mean, don't regular insurance companies have kind of a ton? I mean, there's only so many and they're big. And, and don't they have a lot of bargaining power anyway? They have, they do have bargaining power in a certain way, but but a government run plan has the ability to say, like, this is my price, period. And I'm going to, it also has the ability to say providers have to take it, right? The, the, a government plan has the ability to say, like, I'm going to pay hospitals this much or pharmaceutical companies this much for this drug. And I'm going to use like the power of the state to require, require you to, to take that. Okay. So um, the, now the public option. So, so is this what I think I recall Biden describing this in shorthand as a way to countering uh, Bernie Sanders saying Medicare for all was kind of Medicare for those who want it. Did he use that phrase to, to meaning presumably the public option or what? Yeah. So Mayor Buttigieg used that phrase a bunch too. I see. Yeah. Um, but, but Biden but, did, right? But it's all the, it's all the same proposal. So, so like, that means the public option. Exactly. Which, exactly. which, but you know, that's not Medicare for those who want it. Medicare has this wonderful property. It's free, right? I mean, I mean, a public option that costs you money, it's just, it's just not true to say that that's Medicare for people who want it. Right. Well, yeah. So Medicare has premiums too. Um, so, but they're uh, like absurdly low, right? I, I mean, they're like they're they're subsidized. They're certainly subsidized. Yeah. So the, the hospital share of Medicare is free. The the drug sec part of Medicare and the the physician part of Medicare, you do pay a premium much lower than the cost of the premium. Uh, than, than like the actual market yeah, but value. The, but, but the public option okay. wouldn't have hospital care for free, right? Right. No, the public option would certainly be somewhat less subsidized. Then, so that's kind of dishonest. I so, mean, I'm sorry, but they're, right, they're they're different. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think the the motivating principle is you know you're going to have a the option of a government insurance plan, um, but but it's absolutely a different program with sort of different cost structures. Yeah. Okay. And now, of course, now is his plan so specific that we know what the cost structure is? Um, so we know a lot about what the cost structure would be. So, so everybody would be capped at paying no more than, uh, it's either eight or eight and a half percent of their income in, in premiums. I forgot the number, but, but around that. So, so no family would ever have to pay more than eight or eight and a half percent of their income towards the premium. And it gets much more generous as you, as you, um, as you become lower income. Um, so they, they put even, out even beyond the eight and a half percent or right. Right. So for very low income people, it, it, it's nothing. 
yeah. um, and for slightly higher income people, you know, two, three, four percent. I mean, in a way, it's inherently more generous for lower income people because eight and a half percent is a much lower ceiling. Uh, yeah, but, but then also just the percent yeah. of income that lower income people have to pay is also right. much lower. So, um, okay. And I, of course, the, the public option was fiercely resisted by insurance companies, I guess, which is why it's not with us because I'm sure from their point of view is it's like the camel's nose under the tent. I mean, you, 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 you have the, the state has the power by just changing the cost of the public option to basically price insurance companies out of the market. That's probably their fear, right? If, if you, the cheaper you make it, the harder it is for insurance companies to survive. So you're totally right that that's their fear, and they are very animated in in opposition to this. A lot of experts don't think that fear is quite right. Uh, many many health economists actually think that if you introduce the public option into the market, it could end up being good for the insurance companies because once you have the public option in the market saying, "I don't pay more," I don't pay more than you know. $100 for this drug, mm-hmm. that makes it pretty easy for the insurance companies to get the same deal from the pharmaceutical company. They say, I I have to compete with these guys, so I can't keep paying you the $200 I'm paying now. You need to bring me way down. Maybe I'll take 101 or 102 but but I can't pay you $200 anymore. And so you do end up giving the insurance companies a whole bunch of leverage they don't have. And it may be that there, while some consumers might prefer the government plan, a lot of consumers will prefer private insurance because it might offer certain perks or be better at coordinating care between providers or sort of otherwise be attractive to folks. And so a lot of, a lot of the emerging view among health economists is that a public option could actually be pretty good for the insurance industry and would result in them maintaining a fair amount of market share. Um, at a at a sort of price point that that worked out better for them. Okay, so I guess that gives us a fairly clear sense of what Biden would offer. Which, I, and I guess uh, an eight and a, eight and a half percent cap. Well, it depends on your age, but I mean, say you're the average like fifty year old. I guess an eight and a half percent cap is a better deal than what is available now up to a certain income level. And then it's, and then it's not right. And, and do you yeah. have a, well, do you have a rough idea of what the income level is where, where Biden would be an improvement over what you've got now? Right. So, so nobody's worse off under the Biden plan. Right. Um, it depends on your age, but you know, up to, um, you know, a, a family earning, your family of four, like, you know, parents in their 50s, kids in their teens sort of thing, um, earning, you know, like, probably all the way up to trying to do the arithmetic in my head, but probably like, all the way up to $150,000 a year is going to get like significant additional assistance mm-hmm. uh, from something like this compared to compared to what they get under current law. Which and is certainly for kind of for kind of lower income but not poor, it seems like it would very appreciably uh improve yeah, the situation. Yeah. And and for, for for much lower income people, you know, say a a woman and two kids earning forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year, she's gonna get a lot more assistance under the Biden plan than she gets under current mm-hmm. law. Um because we're sort of pushing down the premium that she has to pay as well. Now, you would hope that the insurance companies would say, well, at least it's not Bernie's plan. We can live with this. But of course, by the time if Biden's elected, by the time they're trying to get it through Congress, Bernie will be gone and they won't feel the pressure of that. I mean, 
so do you, do you have any sense for whether it's be- it, it, it will have become more politically feasible than it was? Of course, we don't know who will be controlling Congress or anything, but but yeah, is there a, a do you have a general sense for whether the the the, 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 the hospitability of the political establishment to it, if that made any sense at all, um, has grown since Obama? Yeah, so I certainly think there is increased consensus on the left, like among Democrats, that a public option would be would be good. So you, you may recall that in the debate over over passage of Obamacare, it was it was mainly Democrats in the Senate that, you know, centrist Democrats in the Senate that that killed the public option. And now you have even centrist Democrats comfortable with something like a like a public option, or at least you know talking okay. about that. It doesn't mean there won't be industry opposition. It doesn't mean it won't be a fight. But I think it's it's on the table in a way that it wasn't in two thousand nine. Um, in terms of whether it's like actually feasible, I, I think in health policy, like things sort of seem infeasible until they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all of a sudden they are and they're done and, and we can't go backwards. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you remember the fight over passage of the Affordable Care Act. It, it seemed, you know, it seemed we, the, the law was like this close to death so many times. And, and yet at the end of the day, it, it, it passed and now it's sort of entrenched into our healthcare system. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to get uh, into like what Trump is, whether he is seriously already compromised, uh, the ACA and, and also a looming threat from, from in the form of Supreme Court ruling, I guess. But first, let's talk a little bit about um, Bernie. So his plan, um, and I guess he's still going to try to move the Democratic Party somewhat in the direction, is famously Medicare for all. That's pretty straightforward. We know what Medicare is. So I guess we know roughly what it would be like for everybody to have access to it. Sounds sounds nice to me. One one thing I didn't understand about how he handled it rhetorically and, and how he handled the drafted legislation is, you know, it seemed to me this was ultimately a huge political vulnerability to him because you could run an honest attack ad that said, this man will take away your private health insurance and force you to exchange it for an untested government plan, which is, well, Medicare is not totally untested, but anyway, they could say that. And that seems to me uh, a real political liability. I never understood why couldn't Bernie just say like, well, first of all, if, if they want, if private insurance companies want to offer insurance, they can, but you know, Medicare for all is going to be so attractive. Good luck. And then he could have also said like, now, if if there are people, I, I, I hope that it'll be so uh, so robust in its coverage that you won't even think about supplementary care. But if but if anyone is not happy with it, you can you can sell supplementary insurance just as we do with Medicare now. So your employer will be able to assure you of any level of benefits, including the one you're accustomed to, if they want, by buying you the supplementary insurance. Blah blah blah. Seems to me that's a very simple story to tell makes this much less of a political liability. What I don't understand, is there an actual policy reason he couldn't say that? Would that actually like compromise the purchasing power or, or, or something? What What is the problem with that? Yeah. So um, the basic intuition behind what you're saying um, is, is I think what's re- what was reflected in um, Kamala Harris's plan. Okay. Um, so, uh, so she had sort of the option to remain in, in, um, in private coverage or public coverage as part of her a part of her plan, 
the, the, you can do something like that. You need to put like a little bit of technical infrastructure around it to make it work. In particular, you need to make sure that, um, like if, if you're going to have private plans in competition with Medicare, you, you want to try to like regulate that competition and, uh, and do some, what, what health policy people call risk adjustment so that if mm -hmm. the private coverage picks off all the healthy people, they don't like unfairly get that that advantage. Um, but, but even if you're healthy, it's hard to imagine how – it seems to me that the, the private insurance companies would be right to fear that in the sense that all that would be left for them would be supplementary insurance because how can they compete with free? I mean, as far as providing the core benefits that Medicare provides, you just can't compete with, with – well, okay, you, you made the point it's not quite free, but it's so far below the actual cost of the insurance company to provide it, the premiums that are charged – it's like, it seems to me like they would not be able to compete except in the realm of offering supplementary insurance. Am I wrong? Well, again, if you have, if you have the, the federal government sort of pooling risk and charging everybody a small premium, again, this is not the Sanders plan. Yeah. The Sanders plan, everything's free for everybody. Okay. But in, in something where the federal government sort of charged everyone a fixed premium that was below, well below the average cost of coverage, um, but, but still required people to pay in, there would be some people who would be very, very healthy and who mm -hmm. the insurance companies could skim off um, because their total cost of coverage would be lower. You know, for this very healthy group, total cost of coverage is lower than if, the average cost. If there's of any, yeah, if there's much of any premium at all. Right. So you need, you need some, some risk adjustment right. to like make that work, but those okay. are, it's technically possible. It's um, okay. And it's, it, it's sort of that same instinct was in Senator Harris's plan. So we don't understand why Sanders didn't just say that then. So I think the the motivating idea behind the Sanders proposal is, well, a couple of things. Fundamentally, I think they look at like how Americans get coverage today and like, you know, some people here, some people there, there's this gap, there's that gap, this people are uninsured. And they say like, this is nuts. Like, why, why all this stuff and these sort of potentially unregulated spaces and gaps that people can fall through? Like, let's just put everyone in mm -hmm. one single unified program. And then the second, I think, motivating factor is like, and be able to say that that is your right as an American is to have, you know, this single unified program covering you. It's simpler. And it's, it's like fundamentally how you ensure universal coverage, how like, everybody wakes up in the morning covered by insurance. There's no choices to make. It just, it, it exists for you. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's some, there's certainly some appeal to that. And I think um, that, that kind of intuitive appeal of people not having to make choices and, and, you know, being guaranteed the benefit without taking any action um, is, is what is, what is motivating the, the sort of, um, like pure version of Medicare for all that, that you see from, from Senator Sanders as a candidate. Okay. So let's talk a little about uh, Trump uh, as an alternative, uh, you know, his healthcare policy is an alternative to what Biden would offer. Um, and that's assuming Biden's plan stays where it is. Again, Bernie would, would, would probably like to get him to move it to the left and who knows uh, Biden in, in exchange for sufficiently enthusiastic support, who knows what he might do. But um, the, uh, so Trump, I remember 
like after he had been elected and it was either right before or right after he'd been, it was before he'd been inaugurated because he said, he said, we will on day one or, or something like that, you know, like maybe day two, maybe day, I remember him kind of equivocating a little saying, but anyway, like right away, we will eliminate Obamacare and we will replace it with something better. And terrific. Something yeah, terrific. It, it sounded great. Uh, it always surprised me. I mean, so you tell me if I just missed it, but he, he made, he, he, well, he didn't succeed in eliminating Obamacare, although we'll talk a little about wh- whether he has eroded it in certain ways. But he, there was just, was there any attempt at all to actually come up with a healthcare policy that could be described as better than Obamacare? Was there something I missed? Did they? There, there's not something you missed. The, there, the Congress certainly voted on things that they would describe as plans, but they are not replacements for the Affordable Care Act. I mean, so, so like, look, like lots and lots of ink has been spilled on the difference between the Bernie plan and the Biden plan and, you know, parsing the difference between Medicare for all and a public option with expand financial assistance. But like fundamentally, both Bernie and Biden are proposing major expansions of the social safety net. They're saying, let's spend a whole bunch more federal money so that more people can get insurance and that insurance is cheaper for them. And they differ in how far they go, certainly. But like, there's the same vision about where we're headed in both those plans. The Republican policies on, on health care have always been oriented in pretty much the opposite direction. So Republicans think that the biggest problem with the way we finance and, and pay for health insurance in America right now is that we just spend too much federal money supporting health insurance coverage programs. Like we should get the federal government out of it. We should leave it to the market. People should pay for what they can afford. Uh, let's, let's provide less federal support here, even if that means more people become uninsured. And like, that's their plan. And, and the bills they have voted on and the sort of things they propose in their budgets and the way they, they carry themselves all when, when they actually are sort of writing policy are, are to do that, to spend less federal money, and, um, and, and even if that means fewer people getting, getting care. But that's not a like, super attractive thing to say politically. And so they're very specific about repealing Obamacare, but much less specific about what their replacement plan is, because when they're forced to write it down, it turns out to be you know, pretty unpopular. And that's exactly what we saw in 2017. So you recall in 2017, Congress voted on a whole bunch of bills to repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with something. Um, and all of those proposals were proposals to like reduce the amount of federal money we spent, get rid of the Obamacare federal money and replace it with something that was like much smaller. And those were defeated because... Did Trump support those? Because I would think his base, a lot of his base you know, his kind of stereotypical base, white working class, would not have benefited from that. Yeah, so lots of people would have been worse off. I mean, the, the estimates at the time were like, you know, 20, 24, 28 million people losing coverage. Um, but because, Trump supported it nonetheless? Yes. Um, I, I think but, on the view that, um, I mean, he was not in there, like championing the details of particular legislative proposals. I think the Senate Republicans didn't want him to be. Uh, but he was, he was sort of, you know, generally supportive of where w- the things Republicans were voting on. And there was never any doubt that he would have like signed any of those bills had they, had mm-hmm. they gotten to him. Uh, but the, the Senate like couldn't put together 50 votes for 
um, you know, for for something like this. There was John McCain's, you know, famous thumbs down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because like ultimately this vision of spending less federal money on coverage programs was was not attractive. Okay. So at what uh so he lost the big votes or the Republicans lost the big votes, but he, has he done things at the, uh, you know, executive level to erode Obamacare? Absolutely. So the, they've taken the, the Trump administration has taken a series of actions that are aimed at, um, at undermining the, the way the ACA operates. I, I think like one of the biggest surprises to me about the sort of 2017 to 2020 period has been how resilient the ACA has been, in the face of those attempts to undermine it, but but nonetheless, they've they've done a lot. Um, they're big things and small things. They're um, on on the sort of more impactful side. Uh, they've promoted sort of alternative plans. They've like found loopholes in how health insurance is regulated, and pulled them wide open. And so they've promoted this form of coverage called short term plans. Uh, which you you may have heard a little bit about, but they're they're sort of essentially unregulated insurance products that don't have to comply with the ACA standards. It can be sold just to healthy people. They can discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. Mm. And so the Trump administration like pulled this loophole wide open. The Obama administration was focused on closing it. They pulled it wide open, and now short-term plans are kind of everywhere in the market, competing with Obamacare plans. Um, and unfortunately, there's a fair amount of evidence that they're sort of tricking consumers into buying these products. Consumers mm-hmm. don't understand what they're signing up for and are buying these like very limited plans that discriminate based on pre-existing conditions and they consumers just like didn't understand it. So that's pulling people out of the environment. And even, even if you rule that out, in other words, uh, even if people do understand what they're getting and it's in their interest to do it, it's rational, you're still plucking out the low cost cases from the pool. So Obamacare, uh, it's either going to get, I guess, costlier for the government or it's going to fall apart or something. Right. Because you're you're left with the the neediest, so to speak, in terms of healthcare needs. Costlier, certainly. Yeah. Um, I think the good news is there's no risk of it totally falling apart. Like we, we, there, there's so many people that get so much financial assistance to buy the good coverage that it, doing something like short-term plans pushes the costs up, but like the market still ha- has proven like remarkably resilient to, to these attempts. Um, so, so, you know, they, they, but, but there are some unknown number of people probably in the millions who have bought these like crappy limited forms mm-hmm. of insurance that, that, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't exist and that you know, really don't, that, that Obamacare was trying to get rid of. So, so- They've also done like, stupid little stuff to make the ACA not work as well. So they've like changed the technical formulas for how financial assistance is calculated so that everybody gets 2% less financial assistance than they otherwise would have. Um, so, you know, like a couple hundred dollars more in, in premiums for, for some people. Um, and that's, you know, that's not going to like collapse the market, but it's, it's just like picking at the ACA and sort of trying to erode some of the the things that the that the law does. Um, yeah. the, oh, God. I was just going to say, and again, you'd think it would be unpopular with some people Trump doesn't want to be unpopular with, although maybe it's so minor they, they barely notice. I don't know. But go ahead. What, right. Well, no, where I was headed was, you know, so there are these administrative actions that have that have really been 
attempts to, to undermine the law. But, but by far, I think the most significant thing that this administration is doing to like poke at the Affordable Care Act is, uh, is, is uh, they're suing in court. They are headed to the Supreme Court arguing mm-hmm. that the entire ACA should be, should be overturned. Now, how many Supreme Court challenges, hasn't it already been subjected to two challenges or only one? Two and counting. No, that's right. The, the law has been sort of under existential threat at the Supreme Court twice before. Both times it was upheld, um, but we are, we are headed back again. So, so the first question was, it was about the fact that you kind of pay a financial penalty if you don't buy into Obamacare. It turned out to be that the penalty was so small, it wasn't much of an incentive anyway, I think, for a lot of people. But it was there, and the constitutionality of that was questioned and I guess creatively, the justices or some of them said, well, if we call it a tax rather than a punishment, you can't argue that it's something like that. Right. So that survived. No, that's exactly right. And then and then there's a second challenge. I I forget what that was about. Yeah. The second challenge was like real obscure. So the the second argument was that the so we talked about the financial assistance that the ACA makes available to people, you know, uh, to buy to buy private coverage. The the challenge was arguing that that financial assistance should only be available in essentially blue states that are running their own platforms, their own websites to buy to buy this coverage. All the states, um, you know, there are thirty some states that rely on the federal government and use healthcare.gov as a website for because that um, was for, an option under Obamacare. States could do their own or or use exactly. the federal government. Uh-huh. Exactly. And so the lawsuit was arguing that because of like a technical drafting thing about the way the law was written, only the states that operated, only the blue states could get the tax credits. The, the red states um, and states that, that relied on the federal website, they couldn't get tax credits. Um, and the, the Supreme Court, by an even larger majority than in the first case, said, like, no, like that's ridiculous. Um, clearly, that's not what Congress meant. Like we, uh, the law, it's like very clear that, that everybody should get financial assistance. But then if you thought like that case was dumb, the, the most recent case is, is, is pushing things even, even further. So the current case that the Supreme Court is going to be hearing um, is about, it, we're, we're back to constitutional questions. So in the current case, um, people are arguing that, uh, well, just to, I guess back up one piece context, you know that Congress reduced the penalty under the mandate. It used to be a couple hundred dollars. Now it's zero dollars. So Congress couldn't repeal the ACA, but they did get rid of the mandate. Um, and so uh, so the, the penalty is like still in the law. Technically, it's just zero dollars. Mm-hmm. So um, this court case is arguing that because the mandate is zero dollars, now it can't be considered a tax. It was a tax. <laughs> when there were a couple hundred dollars in penalties attached to it, but now it's not a tax. And therefore, so wait, I'm not following. Then, then, then what are they claiming is wrong with it? If there's nothing, if there's no version of what they originally said was the problem with it. Ah, uh, yes. So they're saying that because the mandate is unconstitutional, the mandate, the mandate has to go. And then if the mandate goes, we need to strike down the whole rest of the ACA with it. Now by mandate, we mean, what we mean the mandate that you have health insurance right so so current law right now says you must have health insurance or pay a penalty and the penalty you have to pay is zero dollars okay. so that's like that's what the law says right now and okay. so 
these folks are saying, aha, when it says you must have health insurance or pay a penalty, since the penalty is zero dollars, that's not a tax and that's unconstitutional. Wow. That's like that. This is just like putting me in a metaphysical space where I'm just without orientation. I almost can't. (laughs) I almost can't fathom the actual structure of the argument they must be making. But no, that's right. That there were the Republican attorney generals in in Ohio and Montana filed a brief in as this case was making its way through the courts, and they they sort of make the point that like like just describing the argument refutes it. It's like so self-evidently nonsense. And even some of the people who were bringing the first round of legal challenges, uh, some of the lawyers who were arguing the first time around that like we should strike down the whole ACA because of the the mandate, they're on the other side now. They're saying like, yeah, I wanted it struck down in 2012, but like this is nonsense. Um, we, We shouldn't be here. But but we are. And so the Trump administration, like in the middle of a pandemic response, is arguing that the Supreme Court should take an action that would mean, you know, tens of millions more people would would be uninsured. Oh, sounds like great politics. So there's basically no it sounds like there's almost no hope they're going to win. The Supreme Court has generally been sympathetic to Obamacare and the constitutionality thereof. And, and this seems like a really strained argument. I think that's right, though. The court has changed. Mm. Um, you know, Justice Kennedy was not like a swing vote in the in the prior cases, right. but right. but the the court has has changed a little bit. Yeah. So um, so you know, uh, one one never knows. I guess you're right. So um, you know, we could talk like what we've talked about what we could expect from Biden. Should he have his way? Should he get elected and then have his way with Congress? We could compare that with what Trump would do. But I gather there's no reason to think I, I mean, do we think that Trump, perhaps under under pressure from Biden during the campaign, might actually come up with a plan? I mean, I gather he just he doesn't have one right now. Right. He, he just. Yeah, and it's not just that he, like, hasn't done the work to put together a plan. It's that he can't have a plan like the set of policy commitments he wants to make would like are, are impossible. He wants to spend less money, but give people more stuff. And like mm-hmm. you can't. You can't do that. So either you have to spend more money to give people more stuff, which is basically the Biden plan, uh, and you know Republicans think is completely unacceptable, or you have to spend less money and like give people less stuff, and and that's you know not something that that they that, that's something Republicans in Congress say they want to do, um, and that's actually what's in Trump's budgets. The budgets he has released as president would do that. But that's, I think, you know, not going to be like a, a campaign, uh, a campaign position. Mm-hmm. OK. And I gather you you, you co-authored a piece uh, where you talked about um, the, uh, the little ways where if you look at Trump's budget plans, uh, last year's budget, you know, the budget proposal that comes from the executive branch for what that's worth, which pretty much never gets kind of directly translated into policy. But um uh, last year's plan, he, there was some explicitly, uh, you know, explicit erosion of Obamacare. Uh, this year, I gather, it's a little more between the lines, but clearly he would, if he had his way, undermine Obamacare a little more. Right. So last year they said, we're going to spend $800 billion less on federal health care programs by repealing Obamacare. This year they say, we're going to spend $800 billion less on federal health care programs but we're not going to tell you how. Right. So, I mean, 
they, they, they don't say it, but like you can't spend $800 billion less without repealing Obamacare. Right. Okay. Um, so it's basically uh, the choice between Biden and Trump on health care is, is uh, the choice between some possibility of more robust coverage and possi- possibly significantly more robust coverage. And uh, in the case of Trump, hoping things don't get less robust and uh, even though he would like to make them that way. I think that's right. And I think it extends sort of beyond the presidential candidates. I mean, the members, Republican members of the House and Senate have said that if they're back in the majority, they will make another run at repealing Obamacare. So I think, um, you know, it's not just the presidential candidates. You really see this uh, you know, across the across the federal uh, federal electoral landscape. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I guess to just briefly get back to uh, the coronavirus, um, one clear virtue of uh, having everybody uh, insured is, of course, that they, in in the case of an epidemic, which you're trying to head off at the pass, people can afford to do the things that that may help head it off, get the test, go in for the the care and so on. Um, I gather the congressional bill, as drafted, would largely compensate for um, the, the fact that in this case, a lot of people don't have health insurance, at least for these purposes. In other words, it would it would get rid of the disincentives to kind of uh, take care of yourself with respect to the coronavirus. That That's totally right. Okay. So we should, I guess we should root for that. Um, okay. Uh, thanks. Anything else you want to say? Uh, no, this has been a, a delightful conversation. I think we've covered the waterfront. I, I can't imagine anyone ever having a question about healthcare again now. Now that this conversation has taken place, <laughs> indeed, indeed. You know, as the president once said, healthcare is complicated. So I'm glad we've been able to uh, to that resolve was, all of that today. That was uh, I remember that as an early insightful. Uh, was that after he talked to Obama or something? Do you remember I, when it was he, in the in the throes of of the 2017 the transition? It's yeah. like who who knew? Uh, so, uh, okay. Well, thanks. Is there, is there a place people can find your stuff or anything? Do you have a Twitter handle you want to, um, I'm, uh, yeah, at C link young on Twitter and on the Brookings website. Um, if you, if you get to the Brookings website, you'll be able to find my stuff. Okay. That is the, the glo- storied Brookings institution, which I think I called the grand person of think tanks, but that's not the right gender neutral way to put it. You could, you could put a finer point on and call it the grandparent. There you of, go. There you of, go. Uh, think tanks. So we'll call it that. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Kristen, and good luck. Uh, good luck helping people see the light. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Have a good rest of your day. Okay. You too. Bye bye.